Welcome to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. I am Chad Swimmer, and I'm sitting here with my friend Paul Schulman, and we are going to discuss with you all things that are related to Jackson Demonstration State Forest, 50,000 acres of state land owned by you and me, purchased by the state of California in 1947 for $1.5 million. This gem of a forest is one of the largest stands of second-growth redwoods on the planet, one of our greatest allies in the fight against climate change, and an incredible, incredible trove of biodiversity. Jackson, the people's forest, is unseated northern Pomo and Coast Yuki land. Thanks for joining us. start off tonight with some updates on what's happening in Jackson and then we're going to go up to Humboldt County and hear from Tree Sitters Local Union 707. Next we are going to hear from two members of the Jackson Advisory Group, Chris Blinko and Charlie Schneider. Then we will hear from Bill Lemos who is the co-chair of the board of the Trail Stewards and also has been instrumental in many landmark conservation efforts that have happened over the last 30 years on the Mendocino Coast. Gene Parsons slacklining his banjo at the Camp One Amphitheater at Mendocino Woodlands. We're going to start off today with updates on what's happening on the ground in JDSF and also with PG&E becoming a lucrative lumber broker by cutting and selling old growth trees, in this case up in Humboldt County, first for Jackson. We have some late breaking news thanks to our Board of Forestry watchdog, Richard Ginger, from the January 18th Board of Forestry meeting. I quote, due to delays in timber harvest plan approvals and 2021 planned operations, no additional timber sales will be offered in 2022. Yes, you heard that. No additional timber sales will be offered in 2022. This is great news. But I have a couple caveats. First, however, hats off to all the direct activists who put their lives on the line out in the forest last year, and to everybody who submitted comments on the Little North Fork, Big River, Mitchell Creek, and Boundary Creek timber harvest plans. It has been all of our hard work which makes business as usual impossible. My caveats are that the THP development in Jackson continues apace, with large amounts of blue spray paint flying and flags being tied willy-nilly, all without the input of many interested and educated parties, most notably including the tribes, who should have a say in all activities. We will elaborate on this in our next show, since this entire show was pre-recorded before the news came in. In the meantime, cutting and yarding of large second-growth redwood and Douglas fir continues in the Red Tail THP, five miles east of Fort Bragg, where loggers, coached by a private mercenary, conducted a citizen's arrest on six activists. We're going to hear now from two direct activists, both of whom are facing the outlandish charge of false imprisonment. These two folks have been at every action in Jackson since last April and have been absolutely crucial to keeping trees standing across the forest and especially in Casper 500. First, let's hear from Egret. Hello, um, my name is Egret 
I've lived on the Mendocino Coast for 43 years. I'm a direct activist in the defense of Mother Earth. I've been involved in this campaign since last April to protect the public lands of Jackson Demonstration State Forest that have been hammered throughout the years by rapacious and obsolete logging practices under the guise of a demonstration forest. JDSF has started to recover beautifully in many areas, and it is a wonderland of mushrooms and ferns and wild herbs and welcoming waters to the native coho salmon that for the first time this year are returning in promising numbers and they are logging the most choice spots and large trees in areas way too close to the nursery waters. JDSF contains native ancestral and archaeological sites of the local Pomo Indians. It contains magical old gnarly oak groves that were tended by the native peoples in times before the white man came, before the settlers discovered the timber gold of the redwoods. I was at Redtail Monday, January 10th, with the blockades to stop logging there and responded with another woods activist in solidarity when we heard that the loggers, egged on and orchestrated by the private mercenary, said that they were doing citizens' arrest. This logger was spewing disrespect and vile comments at one of our the women at the gate, they were trying to intimidate us, and the mercenary, who was suspected of being employed by MRC, was directing and orchestrating the loggers to do a citizen's arrest. This was carried out later by Cal Fire, who has given this mercenary free reign in our public forests. The fight continues to protect and save Jackson Demonstration State Forest. Please join us. It takes a village to protect these forests for our children and our children's children. Now let's hear from Silver Fox. Thank you very much, Chad. Uh, I think that uh, Egret expressed it so precisely and brilliantly about why we are there doing nonviolent direct action as well as what was transpiring on Monday last, the 10th of January. What I would like to do is just reemphasize what she was bringing up about the mercenary, the private security that was present and obviously orchestrating, coaxing, cajoling the loggers to make the citizens arrest on rather bizarre and murky charges when Highway 20 was completely east and west open to them, uh, false imprisonment. Here's the thing. What I have observed that as long as, almost as long as I've been doing that, is CAL FIRE in many instances during this direct action is conspicuous by its absence. And so for this mercenary to be superintending this uh, in part of the uh, management that CAL FIRE purports to conduct in the forest is, is really outrageous and contravenes completely what one of their principal, if not their principal lawyer, has written is that CAL FIRE is not supposed to cede anything like this, any kind of uh, arrest or um, intimidation in a state forest. This is the complete responsibility of CAL FIRE. And so on that morning when we were arrested and cited, I was asking this mercenary, what I want to focus on here is where is CAL FIRE? And he responded, they've been told not to come. And I repeated, they've been told not to come by, and he said, they're not coming. What did transpire, though, as has already been mentioned, is Cal Fire did, I think, rather reluctantly from my observation, and was obliged to go through with making these citations and giving us court dates. But what really was the, the standout thing is, how is this management when private security in the employee, not of CAL FIRE, can be conducting this and egging the loggers on to make a citizen's arrest. Thank you so much for the update, Silver Fox. Thank you very much, Chad. 
I will be spending an entire hour with Silver Fox discussing a year of direct action in Jackson. That will be on the show, Disquiet on the Western Front, at midnight on Thursday the 27th. Or you can get it on kzox.org jukebox so you don't have to stay up all night. We are going to go to Humboldt County for a report from the Tree Sitters Union Local 707. This is via signal, chat, voice, text. Hello, this is Granzel. This is an update out of what is known as Humboldt Redwoods State Park on stolen Matoll in Sinkion Territory. It is Monday, January 17th, also Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, a federally recognized holiday, and notably the only federally recognized holiday that we have seen arborists and workers out here attacking the forest. Um, we were out here on Christmas, we were out here on Thanksgiving, um, aka Thanksgiving. We're out here every single day, and um, today they chose to disregard um, the federally recognized holiday and show up to attack the forest. Last uh, last Trail Stewards Radio Hour, we talked a little bit about EVM, um, Enhanced Vegetation Management, the project that they are doing out here in the forest uh, to cut down trees of various sizes and ages um, with any proximity to the power lines. It's distinctly different from routine vegetation management because it extends the scope and the distance from power lines that they can cut. It also includes various old growth trees and trees that they deem as unhealthy as well as too close to the power lines, close enough to threaten the power lines um, any time in the next hundred years. Uh, but most of those trees are very valuable habitat and crucial to the survival of the forest. They've outlived forest fires. They've outlived a 5.8 scale earthquake. Uh, many of these trees don't threaten the power lines and EVM as a whole um, is a project based in pseudoscience, encountered surveyors, environmental surveyors that choose which trees are cut. This is their first job out of college. They're not educated in arbory. They receive very little training. They've told me this themselves. I've also encountered arborists who are cutting literally their first trees. Arborists are under particular pressure because northern spotted owl nesting season um, is coming up starting on February 1st. Usually the companies would have to stop cutting at this time. But Gavin Newsom, governor of California, is able to sign an emergency work order to approve that they continue working through that season. A complete hoax, uh, mostly because this isn't an emergency. Um, it's winter out here and there aren't forest fires. The actual emergency is that they're cutting trees in the state forest or in the state park. Fuck. That was Gramsel from the Tree Sitters Union Local 707. You can follow them on Instagram and see what's going on up there in Humboldt Redwoods State Park. You are listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour on KZYX. Now let's go to our interview with 
two members of the Jackson Advisory Group, informally known as the JAG. Christopher Blinko is a consulting registered professional forester and watershed manager based based here on the Mendocino Coast. Forestry-wise, he works primarily with small, non-industrial family forest ownerships, conducting single-tree selection forestry under non-industrial timber management plans. He also designs and builds grant-funded large woody debris in-stream habitat enhancement projects for coho and steelhead. Chris has been on the JAG for just a few months. Charlie Schneider is a fishery scientist and recently started working for Trout Unlimited as the North Coast Coordinator, where he works to recover salmon and steelhead. In a previous life, Charlie ran the technical support department for a bicycle components manufacturer. Charlie has been on the JAG for four years now. Chris Blinko, Charlie Schneider, thanks for joining us. Thanks Great. For Thank you. Thanks, thanks for having us on, Chad. Certainly. We might as well get right into it. Charlie, could you let us know what your background is in forestry and fisheries you know what brings you to to the jackson advisory group yeah i grew up on the coast in in casper so jackson was sort of my backyard and started mountain biking in high school and that kind of led to a career as a bike mechanic in college and then eventually a job in the, the mountain bike industry as a mechanic so when i originally joined the jag it was as a recreation seat because i was really interested in you know, riding up there and, you know, noticing a lot more people from, from other places using the trails. A few years back, I went back to grad school, got a master in natural resources degree um, with a fisheries emphasis. And, you know, that's when I started getting more interested in, you know, fisheries restoration and, and how we're, uh, you know, sort of upland management to, to benefit fisheries. So it, my, position on the Jags kind of morphed from, you know, one solely focused on restoration to one more focused on fisheries and, you know, sort of holistic land management. Mm-hmm. How about you, Chris? What's so, your background? Yeah. Um, so I am from the Mendocino coast as well. I grew up here. Uh, I come from a, a family who's been involved with forestry uh, for, I guess, I guess I'd be technically the third generation landowners and foresters here on the coast and again had a little little run around in jackson back in the day but it was mostly in pickups and you know and the the old kind of old 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 school way of running around in the woods but okay went to college worked in a lot of different places so i was gone for a long time returned to the area intermittently and did some work for various resource management groups here including uh you know, getting out and doing biking out on Jackson in the early 2000s, maybe uh, kind of kind of probably the beginning of this new kind of mountain biking phase of Jackson. And, you know, there was never anyone around, but kind of the old motorcycle trails being converted into more bikey kind of friendly trails. Mm-hmm. Um, so I moved back here in, in the late 2000s and, and I'm now a registered professional forester. And I also do a fair bit of in-stream uh, large woody debris uh, grant-funded um, habitat enhancement work. So I kind of split my time equally between the two of those. But really, my interest in in Jackson now is, you know, as a young father here with kids and kind of seeing the changing demographics of the coast and and really user groups uh, on Jackson. And, and I think many of the contemporary issues revolve around sort of the user groups and, and perceived management of Jackson real 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 or or perceived however it is it's it's real in the eyes of the public and feeling I, I might have a you know 
a background to sort of speak to the various entities and folks that are uh, uh, using the forest, that are managing the forest, that are, you know, all the, all the different user groups out there. So um, I, I'm, I'm new to the Jackson uh, Advisory Group. I've, I've only been there, uh, I mean, I think officially maybe just a few months, but I've, I've sort of been around since uh, spring of 2021. So uh, here we are, and I'm stepping right into it. So uh, willingly, I, I should say, at least at this point. So the JAG is a volunteer position, right? That's correct. Yeah, JAG are all volunteer positions. My particular seat is the, I believe, is the uh, small landowner, uh, non-industrial registered professional forester position, and then there's more of a, an industrial uh, registered professional forester seat. Mm-hmm. So just for our listeners, the JAG is the acronym for the Jackson Advisory Group. And I'm hoping that Charlie, can you tell us a little bit about what actually the JAG is? Uh, yeah. So as, as Chris mentioned, you know, it's a, it's a volunteer advisory body um, to CAL FIRE and the Board of Forestry provide advice and recommendations on the implementation of the management plan in Jackson and also help with, uh, you know, updates as, as that process comes around. You know, the JAG's mission has has kind of changed over the years It originally, you know, I think you've talked to Vince Taylor in previous shows, um, you know, it originally came in or came around as sort of the initial advisory body that helped develop, you know, the, the kind of the first new management plan for Jackson. And then, you know, it, it, its role kind of evolves, you know, as, as issues arise, you know, we meet a few times a year, but, you know, it's looking at, timber harvest plans, saying if they're in compliance with the management plan. And then occasionally we're tasked with sort of, you know, special assignments as they were, be it, be it recreation, you know, going out and scoping trail improvements or working on the timing of closures to try to limit recreational impacts or, yeah, I mean, it, it could be anything. And I think, you know, with the the current issues on the forest right now, you know, I think the JAG's role is, is in one of those evolution periods, um, you know, where we're starting to look at you know, additional things uh, other than just if THPs are in compliance or not and starting to think ahead to the, you know, management plan update in a few years as well. Mm-hmm. What is the composition of the JAG? Can you tell us um, what the seats are on it? Well, let me let me actually start with what, um, you know, what, what seats are available on the JAG. And I should add, these seats are not uh, like prescriptive. Um, you don't have to have only one of each of these people, but they're, they're meant to be suggestive. So one of the things that we just did on the JAG uh, a couple meetings ago was put in the request to the Board of Forestry to change the JAG charter to add like a traditional ecological knowledge or indigenous perspective seat. Um, there could have been that person on the JAG, the, you know, the whole time, but I wanted to make sure, or we wanted to make sure that it was like getting properly advertised. So the, the seats that are available on the JAG are a licensed timber operator, a registered professional forester, biologist, a forest products industry, um, a botanist or ecologist, a physical scientist, like a geologist, private landowners, be that small or, or industrial, uh, researchers, environmental advocates, conservation advocates, um, recreation advocates, and then just community members as well. Mm-hmm. So right now we've got, um, we have a CDF, a former CDFW biologist. We've got small and large uh, landowners. Uh, we have a couple of recreation people that also like myself that kind of wear multiple hats. 
Uh, we have Chris, who's who's our RPF, and then we have uh, Michael Jones, who works for UC Cooperative Extension um, and is a, a forest researcher. Is there a botanist on the on the Jag at the moment? Not right now. I mean, maybe maybe Michael, but he's he's a he's a bug guy and an ecologist. Mike Mike is a, has a PhD in I think forest health and and pests primarily, but he's, he's real sharp and he brings a lot. He works for the UC cooperative extension out of Hopland mm -hmm. and he brings a lot of knowledge, broad, broad based knowledge to the, to the, to the group. So uh, Chris already spoke to this a little bit, but I, since it does take time and you both are working people, why do you feel it's important to participate as a volunteer? How about Chris? So again, I think, I think, Seeing the situation on Jackson State, especially uh, last year, I, I feel like I may have some experience to be able to speak to many of the different issues that are are you know facing kind of the contemporary issues on JDSF today um, through my both professional and and you know kind of recreational uh, personal experience. Uh, that might be a little over. You know, I might be overstating it there a little bit, but it's it's. I, I do feel like I have a diverse background that that may be able to sort of help move this process along, and and get us to a place where where you know we can continue to have this forest for the benefit of of everybody, a working forest, and and it can be something for the community. And I think that's that's really that's why I'm why I'm here. I believe in Jackson. I believe in and uh, all that it provides for our community and, and for the greater, you know, folks of California. Thanks, Charlie. Yeah. I mean, I think at a, you know, really basic level, just, just cause I care about the forest. Like I, you know, grew up there. I like, I like being out there. It's one of my favorite places. So, you know, on a personal level, um, that for sure, I mean, may, maybe above all else, you know, and then just given, given my sort of training and, and background, you know, I think, coming from the recreation side, growing up on a coast at a time that was really turbulent, you know, right when the mill closed, you know, I graduated high school, basically right when the mill closed and, you know, just kind of watching our community go through those convulsions of like, what's going to be next, you know, and, and my experience in the bike industry really made me start thinking about kind of that, how we build out that recreation economy, right. How we capitalize on these, these awesome natural resources we have to, you know, create jobs and, you know, make sure all our young people don't move away from the coast. Mm -hmm. That's, that's part of it. And then the other part is just, you know, my curiosity around like how we, how we manage our natural resources, right? Like how, you know, we all have to live on this planet. We all need, you know, food to eat and clean water to drink and, you know, fuel for fireplaces and, you know, building materials. So humans are going to have impacts on the planet and, you know, we just have to figure out uh, how we can do that in a, in a way that's, you know, as, as, least impactful as possible. And so Jackson being, you know, the kind of to speak to the research side of Jackson, I started to get really interested in it from, from a fisheries perspective, because, you know, as, as hard as everyone's been trying to recover salmon and steelhead on the North coast, there's still a lot to learn, you know, and we, we're still building out that toolbox. So, you know, understanding how legacy impacts have, have, you know, affected fish and wildlife, and then understanding how we, you know, efficiently, uh, fix those problems, you know, restore habitats is, is super important. And it's not just doing the restoration work like Chris does, but it's, it's, 
you know, how do you build a better mousetrap? How do you do that restoration work faster, cheaper, better? You know, that's really what hopefully will push us over the line and, you know, start actually recovering these species rather than just keeping them from going extinct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and one thing that I was wondering is a lot of the activists, uh, forest activists that are really knowledgeable about Jackson, their personal feeling is that the JAG doesn't have any real power or influence. But obviously, you don't feel that's the case, either of you, or you wouldn't bother to be volunteering your time for this. I just wonder if you can kind of speak to the ways that you see that the JAG does have influence and in going forward could even have more influence, possibly. And, and possibly we want to get into a little bit of the mechanics of how an issue can be moved such as is being suggested to change the management plan, what are the levers that the public actually could use to press that forward? Yeah. So no, great question. I mean, I think it's, you know, how, like at what scale you, you define that, you know, power or influence, you know, the, the, what the JAG doesn't have the power to do is to change the mission of the forest. Yeah, so so the mission of the forest, you know, is sort of set by state law, and then it's administered by by the board of forestry, and then by Cal Fire staff. You know, so our interaction is mostly at the staff level, you know, here on the coast. You know, and then we can make recommendations to the board of forestry as well. So, you know, in terms of local changes, like small scale changes, whether you know, and when I say small scale, that you know, that's on like the within sort of a, a THP scale, we'll say so you know, potentially treatment options or, you know, whether we adopt a trail as part of a THP or, you know, or decided to decommission a road or something like that. That is definitely stuff that the, that the JAG can help with, you know, kind of the 30,000 foot view is, you know, sort of outside of our, our purview, you know, as far as like how the JAG interacts with the public, you know, we, all of our meetings are our public meetings and, you know, they I would say in, in the past, they've been poorly attended. Like when it was three, three years ago, no one from the public would show up. And, but now, you know, we definitely see more people. And I think that's good because they get to see the process. They get to interact. You know, we, we, I mean, even from day one, before things got controversial, like we liked having the public there, right? Because it's just more, more people to kind of give us their point of view. So we're really there to, to represent the public, you know, and I, I, we've been talking about ways to, you know, have to make those meetings more inclusive, like do them on weekends or in evenings, you know, to try to really figure out how we can get more people there. You know, one of the tough things is we do them in the field a lot of times. And with COVID, that's been a real struggle, right? Because we have to take like 20 vehicles places, which sucks. But I think all of us hope that, you know, the public will stay as engaged as they are now and maybe even get more engaged, you know, as we, as we start looking at, you know, changes to the management plan or some of the, you know, some of these new processes we're hoping to, you know, to, to implement. Chris, can you speak to this? So, yeah, re- regarding public involvement at the JAG meetings, I think it, I would strongly encourage folks who are at all interested to attend and you don't have to be a act, active participant necessarily, meaning you don't have to be there and, and contribute your thoughts or, or otherwise, I think it's a great opportunity for folks who really don't know maybe get some exposure to professionals talking about management and all the different aspects and nuances of it it's an incredibly kind of complex if you will uh, very site-specific 
very nuanced type of type of approach, uh, forestry in general. And certainly when you're talking about doing, you know, selection forestry in the Redwood region, it's a very, um, it's, it, it, it's, there's a lot to it. So just giving yourself some exposure to professionals, sharing their knowledge, uh, JDSF staff with JAG, and then the public can be there to, to learn as well, ask questions. And then it's not only just hearing it from JDSF, but it's all the side conversations that can happen when you're walking that are very informative. And, and it's a great way for the public to just in, see other parts of the forest that, that, that maybe is, is away from their favorite trail. We're, we're often out in places that the public rarely visits. You know, the, the Jackson's a, a huge forest and I think most folks see very, very small part of it. Mm -hmm. um, they're passionate about that small part, but it's a, it's a, it's a very big piece of, piece of ground. Yeah. Um, it's very complex and very diverse. One other thing I want to add about what the JAG does relative to, to uh, interacting with JDSF and the public is we are uh, recently developed some subcommittees. I'm on one of them that is going to be offering tours to the public intended for the public on future timber harvest plans that are in development that they can come out, ask questions, provide input. And then we may even take that approach to THPs that already are approved and get some public feedback on those. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the plan is approved, but uh, there, there are still certain things that during the implementation of a, of a THP, there's, there's some latitude, if you will, aesthetics type of things, recreation, uh, interactions with public and recreation, other potential research opportunities, you know, maybe some fire, fire stuff, aesthetics, you know, there, there, a lot of the things that people see and sort of take away from a timber harvest plan or a logging job. Those are some, a lot of times the things that we can, can be discussed. So this is all kind of new and we haven't done one yet, but um, stay tuned. The word will get out. The plan is to have an opportunity for a tour intended for the public on proposed and upcoming THPs. I heard that uh, the first one you were thinking of is for the Eastbury THP. Is that correct? That is correct. We have, uh, as far as I know, not picked a day yet, but that is correct. There will be, Eastbury will be the first one. Okay, that's great. I was out there riding last week with a friend and we were really noticing the trees that had been marked for harvest and noticing what we thought as probably a pretty productive way to go about a timber harvest plan, but at the same time wondering about how much road building was going to happen and whether it was necessary for taking out the small trees that were marked. So that's, uh, you know, I would love to attend and please let us know when that date is and we'll probably get people out there. Those are the exact type of questions that those are the places to get those kind of answers to those types of questions. Thanks. Knowing that you're speaking to a really wide variety of people, what do you feel is the best future for Jackson and why? And let's start with Charlie. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to to say one of the things that George Hollister, who's our chair on the JAG, says constantly is, or none of us would manage the 50,000 acres of Jackson the same way. Uh, and we may not even manage it, you know, from our personal perspective, the way that the that the management plan does. So, you know, we're we're there as representatives of the public, you know, as well as a part of a, an ongoing process, you know, to to kind of honor the existing management plan. 
you know, when the management plan gets updated, that that's kind of when we, you know, all of us that are on get to put our own personal, you know, stamps in there, or, or you know, as representatives of the public, you know, kind of back uh, proposals, you know, that that the public supports. So, you know, just to to put that out there, you know, it's not necessarily what we personally want that we're that we're doing in the JAG, but it's what you know what's in the management plan, and it also takes into other factors. I think that can't be ignored, which are, you know, how you, how you pay to maintain public lands, you know, the, the way the demonstration for us is set up is a pretty special situation where they're not, you know, it's, it's self-sustaining. They're not getting general funds. And so while the JAG doesn't have to deal with, fortunately, you know, the, the economics of it, Cal Fire staff does. So, you know, I think we all, we all recognize that. And, you know, anyone that's uh, been in California for a while has, you know, seen the the budgetary issues with state parks in the last few years. So I think that, you know, that that economic concern is a real one. It doesn't mean things have to be the way they have been in the future, but, you know, it's something that has to be taken to, into account. So that said, you know, I, I'm a big fan of kind of the co- community forestry model. You know, I want the community to be involved here and I want folks to be proud of the forest, you know, and what it's doing. I think, you know, we all have our own take on what like the coolest part in the forest is or what our, our favorite thing to do is out there. So I want as many people as possible to feel like, you know, that, you know, those priorities matter. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, in some ways I don't, you know, I don't want to say what my, my personal objective would be because I don't, you know, I think it's up to all of us, right. It's not my forest, it's public land. So the public should get involved and you know, we should all work together toward towards an outcome that, you know, everyone's happy with. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Charlie. This is the Trail Stewards Radio Hour with Paul Schulman and Chad Swimmer, and we are talking to Chris Blinko and Charlie Schneider. JDSF is a treasure to folks who, who know it, and I think everyone has their own personal opinion about what they want to see done out there or, or how they want to see it done or they have their own special spot, their trail, or their grove of trees, or their road, or their shooting range, right? I mean, there's so many different user groups out there. So everyone's going to have an interest, but their interests are diverse. So I think making sure that we can manage for as many different groups as possible, while also maintaining a working forest, I think that is really important. I think we have an opportunity here at JDSF to to be a model working forest for uh, not only in the Redwood region, but in California and, and beyond. And we have a real treasure here. And I think it's something we need to continue to nurture and be proud of. I mean, truly, I, I really mean that. It sounds cheesy, but it's the truth. And, and get involved. And more people involved often make it more difficult to get something done. But that's the reality of, of like Charlie mentioned, kind of a community forest model. We have an ability to manage and, and, and produce lumber, have recreation, do, do, do all the things I think that we hold dear. You know, it's ironic hearing you say this. This is that a year and a half ago, Mike Berna and I, Mike Berna is the, uh, was the president of the Mendocino Coast Cyclists, and I had a meeting with Mike Powers, who at the time was the manager of Jackson State and Eric Wall and Robert Horvat, and we basically said to him what you just said to us, that we could turn this from a demonstration for us that's demonstrating, 
you know, what it is now to a model forest for the world and try to balance all the needs. And we were at the time really pointing out that the Casper 500 plan was a mistake on their part because it was right in everybody's backyard. It was not exactly going to show the best face of the management that they wanted. And whatever anybody's opinion on that plan is, like you say, it's different, but we we used practically the same words that you used. Well, I, I agree with you. And I think what is going on here, here is that JDSF probably didn't fully recognize and realize the amount of user groups, the amount of people that were using the road, the trails in the 500 road and 409 area. And throwing a plan on top of people's best trails was ill-advised, especially the way they did it. They needed to take a lot more time and, and I think a much more aesthetic, you know, make aesthetics and recreation a much higher priority there and do something different there. This is all my personal thoughts now. They needed to do something different there. It is in the matrix, so they're allowed to do the type of management that they are proposing, but they didn't fully acknowledge the public view, the the public uh, opinion that was going to be formed when you do a THP in people's backyards or people people spend all their time. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know what percent. I mean, it's probably less than 5% of of the forest gets 99% of the use, you know, and that's part of it. So. You need to you need to recognize that that was unfortunate, and now here we are. Um, so, Paul, interesting thing I I hear from some of the Cal Fire staff is like they got they're so surprised by this, and gee, I, you know, we thought we were doing public outreach, but I guess we have to double down on it. And there's a lot of focus on talking points and how to best phrase it, you know. You know, I think that fundamentally the issue is much deeper than talking points. And, you know, the only way we're really going to get there is to all sit around a table. So, you know, who knows? Maybe it's possible that JAG can help provide that sort of forum for dialogue. It kind of sounds like you guys are open to it. And, uh, you know, why not look for all the opportunities that we can find to communicate? And, you know, and I'm talking to you guys as as now as, you know, members of the public or the environmental community or whatever it is. But I think there's opportunity to do it better. And I would love to see, I truly mean this, a model forest. You know, I like to see the best forestry that we can do because I, I honestly think it's getting done in this county. Yeah, the word is, is that there is really good forestry going on, especially on the non-industrial timberlands by foresters like you writing plans that are entirely single tree selection. There's a handful of other foresters in the area that are doing that. And we can apply that to Jackson. It's a different scale. It's a different, I mean, honestly, I mean, as a forester, as a, as a landowner, as a, as a forester who works for family forests, did, they blew a chance on 409 and they weren't going to gain the public trust back on 500, in my opinion, um, the way it was originally proposed. And that's too bad. Charlie. You know, one of the things we've we've talked about in past meetings is like, you know, like you, you, it's public land, so it needs a social license to operate, right? Like that's that's really what we're talking about. So it's this balance of like economics, because again, it's self-sustaining. So there has to be, you know, some way to pay for staffing, right? Like, how do you manage fifty thousand acres, right? You need people to do it. So it's kind of this Venn diagram of economics, you know, environmental impacts, and then this social side, which you know, is more of a, it's more amorphous. 
So you need that social license from the public, you know, to do what you're doing. And I think, you know, one of the things I'm struggling with understanding right now is like how, like, where is that on, on logging, right? Because we don't really have uh, probably all the information we need out on the table right now to make that decision, right? Like what, how much income do we actually need to run the forest, right? How much do we need to cut to, to get there? What, what other, you know, what kind of like, how much money, how much of that money are we going to spend on recreation versus security versus, you know, road maintenance, which, you know, me as a fish guy, I'm, you know, really interested in, right. It's really important for our fisheries or restoration work or all that stuff. Right. Like, I mean, sadly we need, you know, we need funding uh, to do that. So, you know, there's a lot of ways to get that funding, but the way the model is now is that it has to be self-sustaining. So Paul, I think you're right. One place to have those discussions is at every JAG meeting on that, again, on that smaller, like THP scale, um, you know, and a lot of the things like the road work and road decommissioning and bridge replacements and, you know, even trail adoption, um, ha- you know, that all happens under the scope of, of a THP. So you kind of get these, these add-ons in the THP process and that's just how things have been set up up till now. So, you know, we have those, those conversations at the JAG meetings at the THP level, but yeah, having that broader discussion of like, what do we really want this forest to be? What, you know, how do we put all those puzzle pieces together? So can you tell us about the 2026 management plan rewrite? Yeah, none of us, I mean, I haven't been through it on the JAG. Um, Chris hasn't. So, you know, we're, I don't think either of us has like a, a personal insight on what to expect, but yeah, the management plan will be up for, you know, up for an update in 2026. It'll likely start with uh, an internal review by staff, probably in in 2024 or 2025. Um, the JAG will be part of that that initial review, um, and then the Board of Forestry uh, is the and Cal Fire are the lead agency on it because it. I, I believe it will go through CEQA, but I'm not 100 sure on that. I would like to thank you guys both for taking your volunteer time to to do this. Thanks a lot for joining us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for thanks for having us and good good to chat as always. Thank you, Paul. Okay. Thank you, Chad. Appreciate the opportunity and and uh, appreciate the KZYX. That was Chris Blinko, a registered professional forester and watershed manager, and Charlie Schneider, a mountain biker and a fish guy. We will have them on again in March because there is a JAG meeting in April and they really want to encourage us to take part that many of us don't feel like the JAG is an effective avenue for our public input. But even Linda Perkins, who was on the JAG until 2012, recently said it's really important for us to be there and to use this and take advantage of the fact that people like Charlie and Chris are there. You are listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour on KZYX, which also streams live on KZYX.org. And we're going to switch gears to our ongoing focus on the Mendocino Woodlands. We're going to hear from Bill Lemos, who is a fourth-generation Mendocino-born resident. He attended local schools and received an undergraduate degree and lifetime teaching credential from Northern California Universities. His 35-year teaching tenure at Mendocino Schools was capped by co-directing the School of Natural Resources. He received his doctorate in education for the work he did in the area of wilderness education. He was 
instrumental in saving 7,000 acres of forest land in the Big River watershed. Bill Lemos, thanks for being with us today. Nice to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood up at the Woodlands? I'd be glad to. Uh, before we do that, let's just talk about Big River in general so we give a lay of the land kind of perspective to what we're going to be talking about in terms of my experience from the time I was very small until now. So I'd like to give a visual representation of what the watershed is like. If you hold your arm up uh, in front of you at about a 45 degree angle and spread your fingers as wide as you can and imagine your fingers are about eight or 10 inches long, those five fingers would be the five branches of Big River that stretch from Highway 20 at James Creek to the North Fork, to the main stem, to the South Fork, and then Doherty Creek along the ridge from Two Rock Lookout over to Williams Peak and then all the way over to Montgomery Woods past Leonard Lake. So if you um, imagine rainfall coming down through your fingers, going down to your wrist and then through your forearm, that would be the main stem of the river connecting at the elbow where the woodlands are. And then the stretch from the woodlands back down to the mouth of the river would be your shoulder, would be Mendocino Bay. So we're going to concentrate on the elbow section of this watershed because I think that's a really excellent place to tell stories and get a feeling for how much importance it has to the local community, especially the older generation and the generations that came before us. So we're going to talk about the camps, family camps that happened from Piccolotti's, the company ranch, just to the north or to the east, uh, southeast of the Woodlands area, and then all the way down to Lily's. That whole stretch was family camp when I was small. And there was the Bishop camp, and there was the Costa camp, and there was the Brazil camp, and there was the Lily's camp. And, 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 there and were... just to be clear, these are all the surnames of different families. Correct. The families who were either affiliated with the Union Lumber Company or knew somebody well enough to say, uh, can I use this area along Big River as a summer camp? The children and the wives normally would set up the camp and the fathers would come in and out and commute to the lumber mill in Fort Bragg. And then they would come in in the evenings and the kids and the, and the rest of the family, uh, moms and aunts and older uh, relatives would hang out at the river all summer long and the interconnectivity of people along that stretch was just phenomenal. I mean, if you ran out of a dozen eggs and you needed one, you'd go down river a couple of miles and somebody would give you a dozen eggs. We're talking about a time after the war, uh, World War II, 45 to about 1970, when those camps were real popular. And then when the Union Lumber Company sold that property to Georgia Pacific, those rights for those uh, wonderful summer days along the river were were taken back and those camps fell into disuse. What I found in my childhood, not only with the Woodlands, which was a recreational camp for mostly children coming out of the Bay Area, was that that was used um, for a specific purpose for a week at a time, whereas the family camps from the local people were months at a time and that was really the difference it sounds that, like mendo's version of the cat skills yes know, with, it, the, with the guys going into the city and working leaving the family up at the resort <laughs> yeah well that that's sort of the way it was 
The Woodlands Camp was a really important part of the whole scenario because it was designated recreation. And you could walk over the hill, over the ridge, it's Steam Donkey Trail now, and go over to what um, is a deeper swimming hole at what we call Deadman's Swimming Hole. It's also called Boyle's Camp. And that area had been uh, very popular with the people coming out of Fort Bragg, Mendocino. Fond memories of being along the river and watching uh, Model A races down the stream bed. <laughs> the young boys would bring their cars out there and they would see how far they could get up and down the river in their old jalopies. That was an awful lot of fun, I suppose, but it didn't do the river any good, but they did uh, have quite a bit of time to parade their cars in and out of there. And it was a pretty rocky road getting in and out of there. So, you know, those old, those old jalopies could make it up over the hill. You have a fair amount of family experience in small scale logging. You come from a family where logging is not a foreign activity. Yeah. Uh... I'm interested in the process by which people who come from one culture can reassess the presumptions of that reality and, and come to different conclusions later in their life, how that happened. Yeah, the era of uh, that uh, mentality of we can tackle these giant redwoods and put them on the ground and move them came from the shipping industry and the whaling industry where huge things had to be conveyed or moved or fledged out, you know, into uh, oil or whatever it was. And big, huge things got moved with the very simple tools. And so that mentality really came home here with the logging industry. And I think, you know, with the 27 dams that were built on Big River, um, those are just examples of how big people could think about what they were doing. We would, humans evolve into using the technology available and um, Basically, in the 1800s, it was, you know, a jack screw and uh, come along and, you know, move these things with steam power. And then, of course, with the development of, of diesel power, uh, things changed rapidly. And, of course, things were moving much faster. But, yeah, that, that cultural thing from my family perspective of my family history is in the whaling industry in the Azor Islands. And then moving through that to the... Um, the settlement of the family here in Mendocino, working in the woods, uh, conveying uh, lumber from the chute down to the wading schooners, those kind of things are in my family history. I mean, yes, we all use wood. We're sitting in a wooden house. We're sitting around an oak table, uh, sitting on chairs made out of wood. We have to adapt to the things that are available. And yeah, my family has been involved. I've been involved. For me, it's this is a a question of the times, that you're a person who is now working to change the management of Jackson State Forest. You seem to me like you're reconciled with your family history. And one of the big questions in America right now is people are like, well, you know, you're asking me to hate my grandpa because he was, he did such and such. How do you reconcile in your head love for the family that you have and the wood products that surround us and what you've evolved into. I think people did what they had to do at the time to provide sustenance for their families. And, um, and the mentality, of course, was a different 
um, you know, take as much as you can and there will always be more. But we've come around to seeing, I think, in our perspective now in the environmental movement that there is a limited resource in so many areas, um, whether it's the, uh, the forest or the seas or in uh, fossil fuels, whatever it is, there's just a limited amount to go around and we have to change our behaviors. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. And yeah. Appreciate you folks, what you're doing in terms of getting the message out. And for you, for all the work you've done over the years to protect the fisheries and protect the forests. Thank you, Chad. Appreciate it. That was Bill Lemos, co-chair of the board of the Mendocino Trail Stewards. You are listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour on KZYX. I'd like to take a moment to talk about a book we've put together and is now available. What would you call this gem of a forest? With photography from Art Milky, John Klein, Sarah Flame, Keith Weiner, Bigfoot, Garth Hagerman, and others. And writings from Bill Lemos, Teresa Whitehill, Teresa Shoulders, Vince Taylor, Alice Walker, and many more. This is available at local bookstores and on our website, www.mendocinotrailstewards.org. The Gallery Bookshop, in partnership with Book Arts Mendocino, is putting on a COVID-friendly Zoom event for us at 6 o'clock Thursday, January 27th, with readings from the book, followed by a Q&A. To register, go to gallerybookshop.com, and thanks always for supporting your local bookstore. And by Bill Lemos's request, Earl Flatt and Lester Scruggs, Cripple Creek. We would also like to let you know about some guided forest walks that are happening with Coyote Valley Band of Pomo Indians Tribal Chairman Michael Hunter. These will be Sundays, January 23rd, February 6th, February 27th, and Monday, February 28th. Meet at 11 a.m. at the Jug Handle State Reserve parking lot in Casper, California. You can witness what is happening in the Pomo homelands. Thank you so much for spending this time with us here on the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. The third Tuesday of every month focusing on forest conservation, forest management, logging, and specifically Jackson State Forest. We hope you've learned as much as we did making this show. To hear past editions, go to www.mendocinotrailstewards.org the media links page where you will find all past episodes archived you can also listen on kzyx.org archive slash jukebox or even better get the kzyx public affairs app wherever you get your podcasts with this convenient click you can hear any of the many great shows put on entirely by volunteers on kzyx listener supported public radio from mendocino county some closing words from postdoctoral fellow and climate scientists trail stewards and environmental protection Information Center board member J.P. O'Brien. Protecting our forests serves the greatest good in terms of people, climate change, wildfire mitigation, biodiversity, health and recreation. In this time of accelerating climate change, it is the best use of our forests is to protect them and let them protect us. Amen. 
Let's go out with Trail Stewart and Jackson neighbor Gene Parsons with Clarence White and the Birds from 1971, the year that Gene first arrived to East Casper. Buckaroo! This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.